going to have you turn to Luke 24. We're going to start there. We're doing a study of the book of Acts that we're beginning this morning, but I want to start in Luke chapter 24. How did we get there? You ever had one of those moments in life when you sort of paused at some place you were at and, and just said, how, how did I get here knowing where I had been before? How did I get to this place? Seems remarkable that I'm here. How did I get here? My, uh, my moment for that, I, uh, when you see the, the president speak to a joint session of Congress and you see the chamber of, of the house, there's the the gallery up above where the guests are, the balcony, and behind that are hallways and some offices and different things. And one of the areas behind that where the, the first lady is, is um, some cubicles for members of the media. There's like a little hallway and then all these cubicles where members of the media um, carry out their work. And in January of 2009, I was working for a Christian radio network and we were getting ready to broadcast the inauguration of Barack Obama. And we had talked about the fact that traffic and security and all of those things that morning were going to be fully chaotic and so a lot of the media slept in their cubicles that night and so I can remember, there we go, I can remember um, being in that little cubicle and, and, and I'm, I'm not a tall guy by any means but I had to curl up in that thing and laying there and thinking I am sleeping in the U.S. Capitol building. This is sort of amazing. How, how did I get here? It was kind of an interesting experience for me. You may have had things like that. How did I get here? And, and this book of Acts, this morning we're going to start this study, when it ends in chapter 28, that is really one of the questions of how did we get here? How are we at this remarkable place in the life of the church where the Apostle Paul in Acts 28 is in Rome, more than 1,400 miles from Jerusalem? For us, that's probably roughly getting to Dallas, which is no small trip 2,000 years ago. And, and the gospel now has been carried to Rome. And the last verse of the book of Acts, as Paul is in Rome, Acts 28, 31, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. That is remarkable when you think about it, just in terms of, of, of the human experience of moving from the beginning of Acts to that point. Paul is a prisoner there but he is awaiting the chance to make his appeal to the Caesar, and he is proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ in the capital of the Roman Empire. In fact, when Paul first got to Rome, he, he did, in, in a slightly different fashion, what he did in most of his missionary travels. When he would travel, he would go to a city, he would go to the Jewish synagogue there and connect with the Jews and explain to them how Jesus was the Messiah and fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. In Rome, he summons them to come because he is being held captive. And so he summons the, the, the Jewish leaders the, to, to, to come and to hear from him, and they do. They come willingly. In fact, Acts 28-22 uh, says they desire to hear from him. They have heard that there is this, this group of people, this movement that is growing amidst opposition. It is facing intense opposition and hatred, and they want to hear from Paul to hear what this Christianity that is spreading is all about. So how did we get here? That is the question that marks the book of Acts. The gospel in Rome in Acts 28, if you look at the map, Jerusalem is on the far right side along the eastern shore of the, the Mediterranean Sea, Rome further over about the middle of your screen. This map, the, the yellow highlights show where the, the Christian church has already begun to expand. This is the end of Acts, 65 AD. But if, if you can imagine 
take away those, those yellow markings where Galatia and Bithynia and all these other cities, Thessalonica are, and, and, and just go from Jerusalem to Rome, think back to the beginning, and it's, it's, all, it's all right in Jerusalem. It all starts with one small group in this one small city. There are a handful of disciples. They are um, beleaguered. There is the sense, at least outside of that room, that, that Jesus Christ is gone. He has been crucified, and there are these these handful of close committed followers. If you look in Luke 24, I'm going to pick up in verse 36, as they are gathered in a room in Jerusalem. Acts 24, 30, uh, Luke, I'm sorry, 24, 36, says, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. This is Jesus' first appearance to the gathering, the assembly of disciples at this point. There have been some appearances throughout the day, it, 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 that resurrection morning and the couple of disciples on the road to Emmaus, but he now comes in the midst of the disciples. He is now raised. They are obviously startled and frightened. It says that they disbelieve for joy. They were so overwhelmed with what they saw. It was, it, it, we've experienced that. It's hard to believe. I, I'm so, uh, so amazed at what I'm looking at. I just find it hard to believe, and, and they are stunned. And it says, Jesus then taught them. If you look down in verse 45, he says, uh, then it says, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, talking about the, how the Old Testament prophesied, opened the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Remember again, get the scene, this is this small group of disciples. There is no church worldwide. There is no expectation that there are other groups of followers around. As far as they know, they are the, the remaining disciples, this small group. The Romans and the Jewish leaders know that there's at least a problem and that the body of Jesus is missing. But the hope at this point from the, the cultural perspective is that people think that Jesus is, is done and gone. And as far as these disciples are concerned, the mindset must be it, it's best for them to just return to their homes and go on with their lives because there's nothing left here. And yet here we are today. 2,000 years later, some 6,000 miles removed from Jerusalem, and we are worshiping the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. We are gathered here in Lorton, Virginia, to sing praises to Jesus Christ, to meditate on the teaching of Jesus Christ, on who he is and on what he did and on what the apostles taught about him. And that, again, begs the question that Acts answers of how did we get here? How are we at this place from that small, frightened gathering to where the church has spread throughout 
the world. And, and I would submit to you that it is through empowered proclamation. That is the theme for our series on Acts, empowered proclamation that grows the church. And you can turn now to Acts chapter 1, and we'll pick up there. The, the book of Acts picks up where Luke leaves off. It is essentially the second volume of a two-volume set, both of, us, both of them coming to us from Luke, depending on how you look at the man Luke. He was either an historian who also practiced medicine, or he was a physician who was really good at recording history. But Luke gives to us the gospel and this account of the Acts. And he wrote them as sort of journals, if you will, for a man named Theophilus. He identifies Theophilus as the one for whom he is writing this, his initial intended audience. And he starts, in fact, the Gospel of Luke in chapter 1 saying, I'm writing an orderly account of the life of Jesus for Theophilus. And then when you pick up here in Acts, and let's start in verse 1, we see Theophilus again. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So there, for starters, is Theophilus again. The word means um, lover of God. Theos is God. Phileo, the, the, the friendship kind of love. So friend of God, lover of God. So we really don't know much about Theophilus. All we've got is just these introductions in Luke and Acts that he is a recipient. So he is either a God-fearing Gentile or a God-inquiring Gentile. He is wanting to understand more about Jesus Christ and the gospel. And Luke is happy to oblige. Luke is happy to gather the, the accounts from other eyewitnesses and from his own eyewitness account that we'll see from time to time in the book of Luke. Uh, so he explains, Luke says, that first volume, he says, I've, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach in the first book until the day of his ascension. So I, I, I wrote to you before, to tell you about the life of Jesus Christ and the teaching of Jesus Christ. And where I ended that, he was ascending. He was departing then from his disciples. And that's where Acts begins. He's, he's now going to fill in. Here's, here's what happens after that. And that's where we start now in the book of Acts. This group of followers of Jesus, the, the church, is, is in its infancy. It is small. It is weak. It is not having an impact at this point on its community and, and, and for reasons that we're, we're already seeing. Forty days pass between the resurrection and the ascension. During that time, Jesus, it says, is appearing to them. And so we gather from that that he's not abiding with them for that whole 40 days. But throughout that six-week period, he, he comes and goes. He appears to them. He teaches them. He goes away from them. Then he comes back again. And that's sort of the, the routine that they have gotten used to at this point. But this, this group of followers is small. They have largely kept to themselves. Um, the, the, they're, they're essentially staying quiet and laying low. And in fact, are still confused, still have questions. We see the, the question in verse 6, if you take a look at Acts 1-6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? There's, there's the burning question. And, and, and the question 
isn't as far-fetched as we might think. We shouldn't criticize them in light of what they know and what they understand. Essentially, what they're saying at this point is, Jesus, you have just done the most remarkable miracle. We've seen miracles before, and we've actually even seen the dead raised before, but that was, that was raisings of people who were still mortal. They were still going to die. You have now been crucified, buried, risen in a glorified body that will never experience death again. So you have, have done the miraculous in a measure the likes of which no one has ever seen at this point. And so now that you've demonstrated this unrivaled greatness, is now the time? Is now the time when you will accomplish the work in Israel of, of making this nation great? Is now the time when you will throw off the bonds of Rome? Is now the time that you will exalt the Jewish people? Is now the time that we return to the, the glory days of Solomon's temple when, when enemies did not pierce our borders? Is now that time when we live at peace? Now, before we're too hard on the disciples for this question being sort of ethnically narrowly focused, we need to remember Jesus came as the Jewish Messiah. Luke even records the prophecies before the birth of Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 1, verse 32, the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. And so there's an expectation of a kingdom, of a throne of David. The prophecy later in Luke 1 from Zechariah, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. So the disciples' idea that Jesus has come to, to rescue the Jewish people starting in Jerusalem is, is not without foundation. And in fact, Jesus doesn't rebuke the question as much as he responds to the, the timing part of the question. That's the part that he pushes back on. He says in verse 7, he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. What he says is, all of this, this consummation, this establishing of the kingdom, the timing of this belongs to the Father. And so this idea that we're going to say now is the time, you don't know, and I have left that to the Father. That is under his authority. So you need not worry about whether or not now is the time for any of these aspirations that you have. But again, consider this scene. Here is this little group of disciples, 11 and, and probably some others with them, they're small, they're weak, they, they've still got some wrong expectations that are largely sort of political, territorial at this point. Their vision is puny. Their concern for the world outside of Judaism is virtually non-existent. And that's where Acts begins. By the time Acts ends, thousands and thousands of people have embraced Jesus Christ Jews and Gentiles have come into the kingdom of God, have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, and that gospel is being preached throughout the land of what would be considered arch enemies. The message of Jesus Christ has been delivered to Gentiles, and there are now dreaded Romans who are now brothers and sisters who have come alongside and are believing in Jesus Christ. In fact, many of these very same disciples 
who sat in that room with Jesus with their parochial sort of concerns about what he's going to do with the Jews here in Jerusalem, many of those very same disciples, by the time Acts is finished being written, have already given their lives as martyrs to proclaim the cross of Jesus Christ, to proclaim forgiveness of sins to Jews and Gentiles alike, and to call them to come to Jesus Christ as Savior. So how did we get here? What happened? The answer to that question is is not just a matter of church history that satisfies our curiosity. We need to understand what happens in the book of Acts and how we move from Acts 1 to Acts 28, how the body of Christ with this handful of confused and frightened disciples all located in a relatively insignificant city in terms of the Roman Empire. Jerusalem was was not a, a major metropolis by any stretch. How does it all start there and over the span of its first generation? It grows and grows to the point that by the end we are in the capital city of the Roman Empire and the gospel is being proclaimed with boldness and without hindrance and the, the emperor is about to hear from Paul about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So whatever happens in the book of Acts not only fills in our understanding of church history, helps us connect some dots in terms of geography and chronology, uh, but more importantly, Acts Acts shows us how God breathed life into this small little body, insignificant group, and, and planted the church, began the church, and started what would grow and grow and spring up and, and not just that being miraculous, but in the midst of a overtly hostile environment, an environment that did not want to hear about Jesus Christ for the most part and persecuted those who did. How does, how does God accomplish that in the midst of this? Even Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The book of Acts shows us how that actually happens. What, what takes place that God indeed builds his church. And so the book of Acts not only does that, but it instructs us. How did God do that? How did he use his people in that process? Where do God's people fit in this growth and expansion of the church? And that's what we need to see and learn. How did we get here? How did God do this? What principles can we learn from what we see in the book of Acts? I want to submit to you then, going back to our theme, and we're going to focus just on two words for the rest of our time, empowered proclamation, that ultimately what God uses to get from here to here is empowered proclamation. Those two words become sort of the focal point of the, 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 the outline we have in Acts 1.8. When Jesus speaks, he kind of gives us what is the outline of the book of Acts. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria into the ends of the earth. We, we read that verse. A lot of you have memorized that verse, or at least you, you know that verse, and, and we read it and pretty well say, okay, I, I know how this works. The gospel begins to, to, to spread at this point. But imagine how shocking that is to those in that room when Jesus says that. They, they who have just asked, what's going to happen here in Jerusalem for the Jewish people in Israel how are you going to do our kingdom sort of thing? Is now the time that the kingdom gets established here? And, and Jesus says, um, sort of. It's, it's a little bit more than that, guys. It's going to be here, but then it's going to be all of Judea, and then it's going to be Samaria, 
which just has to throw them for a loop at this point. We're now crossing ethnic lines and going to the ends of the earth. He's now saying that it, it, it's much more than you even begin to fathom. There's a kingdom here, but it's much more than you're envisioning. And the very first thing Jesus says to those disciples is, you need power. He has been saying that since the beginning when he told them, you are staying in Jerusalem for the singular purpose of waiting here for the Father's promise, which is the Holy Spirit that I told you about. He's already set that up. We saw it at the end of Luke. He says it again here at the beginning of Acts. You need power. The, the implication of that, if somebody says to you, you must remain here in order to receive something, it, it implies you don't have it. You, you lack whatever that is. And so he's saying to them, you don't have this. You can't do this. You can't leave from here and expect to, to accomplish anything for the good of the kingdom apart from God's power. He's been telling them this since late in his ministry as he prepared them for his departure. Remember the, the vine and the branches in John 15, 5, when he says to them, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, but apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. And so he's He's been saying this, you, you can't do this on your own. You must wait in Jerusalem. You need power from the promised Holy Spirit. When the disciples first heard in John 16 that Jesus was going to go away from them and not just go and come back, but that he was going to go away from them, we know that they are filled with sorrow, John 16 says. They, they can't fathom, how do we how do we do this, what, what, whatever you've been doing, that we've just sort of been alongside you? How, how do we do this without you here? And in John 16, verse 7, Jesus says, It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Because of that promise, that's why the ascension that Luke records for us again here in, in Acts 1, that's why the ascension is so important. Look at, look at verse 9. It says, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The, the disciples had been used to being alongside Jesus. And, and even during that 40 days between resurrection and, and this moment, he, he still comes and goes. He's with them at various times and places. And so they're sort of of this expectation that, that he'll be there. The ascension changes that. The ascension is sort of the, the full stop, if you will, that says, no, now it is different. Now I am ascending away from you. I will not be physically, bodily present with you as I've been. And that finality is essential to the coming of the Spirit. That's the promise in John 16. It's to your advantage that I go away. If I don't, the helper doesn't come. It's only when I go away that you then receive the power from the Holy Spirit. And so when he had commissioned them again in Luke 24, he said, remain in Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high, which he describes as the Father's promise. We read it again. Just look back at verse 4 one more time. And while staying with them, he ordered them. Notice the, the tone there. 
he is being firm with them. He orders them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, John baptized with water, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Jesus didn't merely ask the disciples, hey, can you stay in Jerusalem and just wait? Or I, I think it'd really be good. I'm, I'm just suggesting that you wait here and there's something really good coming. He commands them and says, you are, what he said before, you are powerless apart from me. You must wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come upon you and he will bring you power. And they were to stay there and to wait. You and I are powerless apart from the Spirit of God. We... we in our flesh, cannot strive to, to follow and obey God and, and, and do it because we're somehow strong enough or, or, or smart enough or whatever it might be. We desperately need to rely on the Spirit. That's why Ephesians says, keep on being filled with the Spirit. It is keep submitting yourself to the leading of God's Spirit. Keep depending on God's Spirit because you can't do this on your own. We need the Spirit of God, and that is no more clear than it is right here in the beginning when he says to them, I want you to just stay put and wait until this promise is fulfilled and the Spirit comes upon you. And the book of Acts shows us that God's people need the supernatural power of God to be ministering in them, because that is what, what the Spirit brings, and what we're going to see as we, we walk further through Acts chapter 2, is the Spirit brings the presence of Jesus Christ into our lives. It brings the actual power of the Savior as the Spirit is at work in us and bringing us His presence, and He is dwelling in them. If you go up to D.C. or most major cities now, um, Battery-operated scooters are kind of all the rage. You know, if you want to get around somewhere, you, you, you get a scooter and you, you can, you know, go for all over town on one of those things. First time I, I used one was last summer. Um, I was, my, my daughter was running, Bethany was running a marathon, and I had to sort of chase her around the course. And so I thought, I, there's no way I'm going to do this otherwise. I'll get a scooter, and that way I can kind of go from point to point and shortcut and get sear. And so I'm, I'm from the generation that scooters were powered by kicking with your foot, right? And, and then you hoped for some gravity to, to help you along the way and hills that always went down because when you went up, you just kind of had to walk the thing at that point. And so I got this, did this little thing on my app and I got the scooter and I did what I thought I was supposed to do and I got on and I pushed with my foot. Well, the fact that it's a battery operated means it's got a motor on, so it's even harder when you push it with your foot and it's less moving and I'm going, this is really stupid. It's going to take me forever if I have to do it this way. And, and by God's grace, somehow common sense kicked in and said, oh, there is a lever here. Why don't I try pushing it? And I pushed it, and we were off to the races. I mean, it was, it was good then. My kids are still embarrassed at that. It's like, way to go. And you go okay, boomer, right? There it is. Um, trying to, to live the Christian life apart from relying on the Spirit of God. Is, is, is as foolish as trying to, to push that scooter along and, and, and not rely on the power that's built into it. Trying to evangelize others, trying to make disciples apart from the Holy Spirit, trying to do this somehow in our flesh and in our own smarts and thinking we can accomplish these things is, is foolish and futile. And, and, and Acts is here to remind us that there is no way we get from chapter 1 to chapter 28 apart from the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the body of believers, that the Spirit must come and dwell 
in his people. There's no other way we get from this handful of frightened, weak followers to a body of thousands, from a tiny little sect in Jerusalem to a dramatic work of God all over the Roman Empire. We don't get there apart from the Holy Spirit. And in fact, after Acts, throughout the the New Testament epistles, one of the the constant themes that we keep coming across in the New Testament is the apostles writing to try to help us wrap our minds around Christ in you. The New Testament writers trying to help us understand that the Spirit has now come and you are baptized into the body of Christ and Christ is in you, the Spirit dwells in you. And there's so much teaching throughout the writers of the New Testament because they're trying to get us to understand and appreciate what it means Christ is now in his people. Paul writes about that in Colossians 1, and he's talking about what it means to be saved, what the work of Christ, the incomparable work of Christ is. Not only are we saved from sin, not only are we spared God's wrath, but he says, this is now a mystery that is being revealed. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The the fact that now Christ is transforming your desires and changing your heart and working from within to, to... to help you toward obedience, to to change your heart desires. The Spirit now dwells in us. We're going to see more about that when we walk through chapter 2 and and the pouring out of the Spirit and and what that looks like in the disciples and what it means for us. But, But take away at least this for today, and that is we need divine power from God in order to walk the Christian life, in order to make disciples, in order to do the task that he calls the disciples to, which by application comes to us, which is to be witnesses. We don't do that apart from his spirit being at work in us. And so he says in verse 8, you will receive power when the spirit has come upon you and now the task, proclamation, you will be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is what Jesus had told his disciples. We read it back in Luke 24 when he walked them through how the the writers in the Old Testament had promised that the Messiah would come and suffer and die and be raised. And he says to them at that point uh, that forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And so from the the beginning after his resurrection, Jesus says, here's your task. You will be proclaiming, you will be speaking, you will be communicating the truth of who I am and what I have done. You will be my witnesses, and the content of your testimony will be to preach Jesus Christ, to speak Jesus Christ to people. The words of Jesus in Luke 24 and Acts 1-8 were meant first and foremost directly for those 11 as he's speaking to those 11 disciples. They will be added to with Matthias, they will be added to with Paul, when he is commissioned as an apostle, but by application, that task comes now to you and I as followers of Jesus Christ, as those who have been given his spirit to proclaim the truth about sin and the Savior and to tell people about Jesus. In Acts 17, the opponents of Christianity are in Thessalonica and they are complaining about Christianity and they say that this is that movement that has turned the world upside down. And and the irony is we know that historically movements that turned the world upside down did so by might 
by military, by, by force, by manipulation, by requiring things of people. And, and here they are, unbelievers saying, this, this group has turned the world upside down. They hadn't manipulated anybody. They hadn't bribed anybody. They hadn't forced anybody. They had simply given testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They had proclaimed who he is and what he's done and how he saves sinners. God turned the world upside down by empowering ordinary believers who would tell others, just like the 11 are told to do in, in Acts 1.8, empowered by the Spirit to declare that sinners deserve God's judgment and there is a Savior who has come and given his life for us and been raised from the dead. One of the interesting things we're going to see in the book of Acts as, as the gospel progresses and it moves through sort of these geographic Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth, one of the things that we'll see in that process is that along the way at each step, we see there's, there's usually one or two or three miracles that take place. That as the gospel penetrates new boundaries, that there are some kind of miracles that take place. What that's doing is it, it, it's authenticating who the speaker is of the gospel at that point. They don't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John right now. They don't, they don't have that record of the life of Jesus Christ. They are depending on these witnesses, these apostles who come and speak to them the life and teaching of Jesus Christ, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the, the miracles act as signs to authenticate that when this one says... Here is the word of the Lord. Here is the, what Jesus Christ did. There's authority that goes with that. Too often the, the, the modern day charismatic movement has gone to the book of Acts and said, sort of singularly focused in on the miracles and said, see what, what we need in order for people to be saved is more signs and wonders. They need to see displays of, of power. They need to see dramatic things that, that are compelling because that's what we see in Acts. What, what we see in Acts is a handful of those meant to authenticate a particular apostle, but, but the reality of Acts is what we see over and over again is exactly what's promised in Acts 1.8 when Jesus gives the commission. Power from the Holy Spirit to proclaim the truth to be witnesses. It'll, the, the power will come through speaking the gospel, through speaking of who Jesus Christ is. And it is that means that God will use to bring people into his kingdom and to trust in Jesus Christ. And that is our model. That is, that is what we are called to, is to be witnesses. We are called to live a life that loves God and loves neighbor, and, and, and that's the work of the Spirit in us to enable us to love. We're called to live a life of integrity, of Christ-likeness, and that's what the Holy Spirit does as he works holiness in us, changes our affections, and moves us toward holiness. But we're also called to proclaim to be witnesses of who Jesus is and what he's done. It's not just living the life, but we are called to be witnesses, to testify to the reality of sin and death and the need of a Savior who is Jesus Christ and to trust that that proclamation is what God uses. The book of Acts is a record of, of proclamation. We're going to see sermons, testimonies, one after another that keep pointing back to Jesus Christ, to the cross, and to the resurrection as the hope, as the thing in which you must put your faith. And when that faithful witness is proclaimed, God, by the power of his spirit at work, opens blind eyes, raises the dead, and brings people to embrace Jesus as Savior and to bow before him.
That's what's before us in the book of Acts, is a call to being faithful in our proclamation and relying on the power of God's Spirit to enable us to do that and to do the work of changing hearts. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the glories of salvation that you have worked in the hearts of those here who are trusting in Jesus Christ. We are not deserving. This is not something we have earned. It is out of your kindness and grace that you have rescued sinners from the deserved judgment that we face for rebelling against you. Thank you for your son Jesus Christ giving him to be the ransom for our sin and thank you for sending the Spirit to apply these things to our hearts. Father, we pray that as a body of believers, this church would be marked by boldness. That we would be people who not only are grateful, living in the, the good of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but that we are people who are witnesses to it. That those we encounter family members, those we work with, neighbors, those around us would understand that the, the transformation that has happened in our lives is not because we got smarter or better or did things more correctly, but because we, we surrendered to the Savior Jesus Christ, because we believe in him and his death and resurrection is what gives us life and hope. Thank you for the hope of the gospel. Help us to proclaim that well. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who is not trusting in Jesus Christ, we plead with you that you would open their eyes to this truth, help them to see Jesus Christ as the sinless Son of God who did not deserve to experience the cross, but did so willingly in order to bear our sin, to suffer the, the wrath that sinners deserve in order to be rescued and saved by his good work in his death and resurrection. Thank you for saving a people for yourself. Thank you for teaching us, showing us through the book of Acts. Your commitment, your passion for building your church, for bringing people of every tongue and tribe and nation into the great kingdom of God, that together we might raise our voices in worship to lift up the name of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.